Good morning. Today our scripture reading is going to be from Genesis, the second chapter, starting with verse 18, and I'll be reading through verse 25. So turn in your Bibles, turn on your smartphones or your tablet. I will be reading from the ESV version, so follow along with me as we share in the word of the Lord. Again, it's Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to every beast of the field and to the birds of the heavens. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you cannot overstate uh, the importance of Genesis 1 through 3. You can't do it. You cannot overstate how important these first three chapters of the Bible are. They tell us so much about humanity, where we came from, what our responsibilities are, and why doesn't earth look like a lush garden paradise today? Genesis 1 through 3 tells us all of those things. Last week, we looked at the primary responsibilities given to Adam who was formed by God and then filled with his image to work and form and shape the garden he'd been given. He had a moral responsibility as well, you remember? To stay away from that one tree, a prohibition put on him in this new relationship to his maker. A reminder that he'd been given everything he needed to live the life of godliness in this perfect paradise. Well, this morning, the garden... If the garden that God had placed Adam into is like an earthly paradise, and it seems like he has everything he needs, why is it not good for Adam to be alone? What's he lacking? Well, we're going to find the answer this morning by looking at Adam's need first, God's beautiful, complimentary answer in Eve, and then the resulting marriage that comes about through this process. So we're going to look as well, too, as we talk about marriage, at the, at the blessings and challenges as well, what it means for you to be married, what it means for us to be united to someone so like us, yet so unlike us. We need more than ever in our confused culture to let God's Word be, defi- be what defines your value, your worth, what it means for you to either be a man or a woman. So if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 2, we're going to look at this shocking revelation of Adam's needs. So grab your outline as well as we take a look that God creates Adam as incomplete and then shows him his need. That's where we're starting today. 
God creates Adam incomplete in some way and then shows him this incompleteness, this need he, he has. God, as we've seen in Genesis, is the initiator of everything, of all things. The initiation, he initiates creation in these chapters. He initiates by speaking in these chapters. Adam, do this. Don't do this. This is good. He is forming. He's causing. He's making a covenant with Adam. God initiates everything in Genesis. And here God continues with the relationship of the man and woman as he initiates and now shapes this relationship. And what we have here this morning in Adam and Eve is is the pillar of human existence, really. It is the building block of society. It's vital for life, the marriage of this first man and woman we see here. But God initiates in a shocking way. It's unexpected. Surprising, you might even say, as I was reading most commentators this week, all surprised. All say we should be shocked and surprised by what happens here. After stating how good creation is over and over and over again. It's good, it's good, and humanity is very good. We're blindsided by not Adam, but by God saying, something's not good. Something is not good here. It is not good that this man should be alone, God says. That's not from Adam's mouth. That's from God. Wait, what? How can you be unhappy in paradise? How could you be lonely? He had God. Perfect companionship, friendship, relationship. Well, the answer, I think, is this. God intentionally created Adam to need more than God. Be careful with that when I say that, because you've got to be careful there. But he created Adam to need more than God. That doesn't mean that his relationship with God lacked anything or that God in and of himself lacked anything, or that it was a faulty relationship. It doesn't mean that. The relationship with God is the one thing you all, we all need. We have to have that. But what we see here is an incredibly humble act by God. Incredibly humble. We're going to look at God's humility for a moment. In this, give, or in this need, in this showing of the need, God is saying, Adam, your relationship with me alone isn't good enough. God makes Adam to need another being than himself. It's really fascinating. It's really shocking that the God of the world who created out of nothing would make Adam to need something more than just himself. Someone besides God, other people, the community of humanity, to not be alone. This is how God wired and made him to need other hearts, to need other image bearers. I mean, it's the idea of community in church. You can't go it alone. You know that. How unselfish. How sacrificial. And other-centered God. Not self-centered at all. I'll create you to need something other than myself. This is not good. You're alone. You need someone. What a humble God a helper fit for you. And God didn't have to reveal this to Adam. He could have just had Eve at this moment when God said, that, you know, this isn't good. And Eve just is there. But he doesn't do that, does he? Did you catch that in the story? He doesn't do that. He doesn't have to reveal the need to Adam, but he does. He lets Adam see his need and lets Adam see that God would be the one to supply and provide for his need. 
So in God's humility, let's take a look at this need and God's answer to it. Well, God's answer, we will look at more in a minute, is described as a helper fit for him. Very carefully chosen words we're going to talk about in a minute. A helper fit for him. But we know Adam is unaware because God shows him. He's unaware of this need because he, he leads him forward and he shows him this need by asking him to interact with all the animals on a deep, deep level with the animal world. He could have created the helper immediately. But instead, what does he do? He takes an entire zoo of animals and parades them by Adam. They come walking by him. And he is to name them. This whole zoo walks by. And Adam, as he's watching them, he's exercising his dominion over creation by naming them. Now, as they came by, this wasn't just some haphazard exercise where he was like, meh, monkey, porcupine, beaver, elk. You know, it wasn't just some kind of like parade, eh, eh, you know, I don't know, giraffe, uh, elephant, lion. You know, no, 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 no. To name something in the Bible is to take some time to understand it. Something you name, you need to understand its nature. What is it? What is it? Names have so much importance in the Bible. We know that. And as he was studying these animals and taking time to know their nature so that he could name them appropriately, he saw the coupling of these animals and understood their nature of reproduction and partnership. And he became increasingly aware, hey, wait, wait a minute. Where's my partner? Where's my other half? Where is the one who who shares my nature? Where's this person? And his call to care for and to cherish and love and lead, God was awakening in him through this moment. Eve didn't just pop up. God showed him his need and awakened in him this desire. God, you've given me all these responsibilities of creation to care for it. These, these, these commands, these prohibitions, and I understand my task, and yet I have need. I can't go it alone. I can't do it alone. Men, it's the paradox of the Bible. It is the paradox of the Bible. You as a man are given a primary responsibility to spiritually lead in our families, in our church, and yet we're needy. We need a helper who, who's equal to us and who's fit for us to get there in that mission that God's called us to, to glorify him in our families and churches. Men, this is a call. I'm speaking to our men now. A call, a responsibility to steward our families and churches well as leaders, men. We're called to that. It's right here, before the fall, in Genesis. This man and woman who come together. Here's how Ray Ortland Jr. described it. He said, it is in the partnership of the two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction, men. That is your call. At home, at church, do you hear me? Do you hear God in this? To be bold and courageous and self-sacrificing 
and initiating and humble godly leaders of our families and churches. We desperately need that. Are you aspiring to be a godly leader in your home and here at Bethany? Are you sitting on the sideline of your family and church? God wants you to step forward. Don't sit on the sideline. Adam's called forward here. And our model in Ephesians 5 says Jesus is our model. This sacrificial giving up of his life is to be the model for men as they lead. Tender, sacrificial, but bold, and yet humble leadership. And if our model is Jesus in Ephesians 5, any distortion of this call to lead, turning it into domination over a woman, my will over hers without regard to her spiritual equality or rights or value, is a demonic distortion. Domination is a demonic distortion. That is not what God is calling Adam to. That is not what God is calling men to. You could call it a damnable distortion. No, this leadership responds with Adam's poetic explosion. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's who she is. That's not domination. But the abuse and distortion of the call to lead doesn't negate or lessen the responsibility to lead men. And we've got to define ourselves not by past hurts or cultural wins, but by the word of God. That's what defines us. That's, who says, that's what says who we are and what our call is. And here we've got a humble God who wanted Adam to see his call to lead and his need as well. His great need as well. As he shows us the complimentary answer that was needed to glorify him, for Adam to image him on earth. So let's look at the beautiful creation of Eve. God makes Eve as a helper that's fit for him. That's fit for him. Now, the temptation is, and how some have exploited this story, is to say, well, wait, 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 wait. A helper. That is demeaning. That is absolutely demeaning. Aren't we equal? And of course we are. We know we are equal. We are equally made in God's image. We're going to talk about that even more this morning. But it is absolutely illogical to assume that if God makes two genders, a man and a woman, and if God assigns different responsibilities, and even the word different roles, you might say, it's illogical to think that that necessarily means inequalities. It's not logical. Again, it's been distorted. But differences don't equal inequality. Tell that to the Trinity. (laughs) Different roles, different responsibilities. We even see the Son of God submitting to the Father. Tell the Trinity that difference equals inequality. It it, it doesn't. It's good for the Trinity. There are different roles and responsibilities, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet they're all equally God. The two humans as well are equal image bearers. So let's look at equal image bearers together. What a scene we have here. What a scene with Adam and Eve and God stepping on the scene here. What does God do? He performs the very first surgery. The very first 
divine surgery. And by the way, just so you know, men, you do not still have one less rib than women. There are some pastors who have said that without checking out biology, actually. You do not currently have one less rib than a woman sitting next to you or here in the congregation. But God performs this surgery and Adam finally gets it. Oh yeah, it's not good for me to be alone. There's a look of loneliness maybe in his eye as the animals lumber by him. And God approaches him and says, my son, Adam, I want you to lie down for a minute. Lie down. And and I want you to close your eyes and you're going to go to sleep. Look at verse 21 with me in chapter 2. So Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. A divine sleep comes upon Adam. It's brought upon him, and an, an actual rib for Adam now, not for you, but an actual rib of Adam's was taken out of his side as God opened him up, pulled it out, and sealed him back up. She is made of the same stuff, the same stuff that he is. Adam, remember, he was from the dirt, a dirtling. That was Adam. But Eve is taken from Adam. It literally says he took like a warm, glistening rib still out of the man's side made of the same DNA, actually, and he built this rib into woman. And because she was made from Adam, she shared with Adam the only type of equality that really matters. She equally imaged God. That's what she had. That's what he had. Nothing lacking in her capabilities, her ability to pursue wisdom, her relationship to serve God, Adam's equal, in all of those things. This was Eve taken out of his side. Don't cut out those Puritans. Here's what Matthew Henry said about it. Their words can sound ancient and be from a long time ago, but don't count them out. He said this, Matthew Henry, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's sweet. It's beautiful, a creation out of Adam, equal in dignity and worth and honor and to be cherished, this helper fit for him. She's called that twice in the passage. This helper fit for him. We've got to unpack these words for a minute because they're so specifically chosen by Moses to describe woman, to describe her calling too, as a man is called to lead. Her calling as well. So let's unpack these words. In doing so, we're going to understand who she is and who he is and why marriage is what it is and why marriage is so hard too. We're going to go there this morning. Why marriage is so hard too. Let's look at the helper. Strong helper we're calling this. A strong helper. The Hebrew word here used for helper here is uh, etzer. It's pronounced etzer. I kind of have it phonetically up there for you. It's spelled E-Z-E-R. This word is a word that the English translations don't, they're not really that helpful. They don't do justice to the word. That happens often with ancient languages and bringing them into English. We don't quite have uh, the exact word or even concept sometimes. 
But, and here is one of those occasions. Helper doesn't do justice to this. Now, to our women, this word, helper, is used some 21 times in the Bible. Some 21 times. And a lot of times, this word helper, do you know what it's used of? Military reinforcements. Military reinforcements. Picture an overwhelmed army on the brink of defeat. They're being overwhelmed by the enemy. And at the last minute, military reinforcements arrive on the shore, come by boat, drop down from the plane, come from a rib. (laughs) This military reinforcements. It's a military strong term that actually, you know as well, that God uses for himself a lot. This same word. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And God uses this word for Eve. She brings in strong help. She brings a strength as a strong helper. She's no weakling to be exploited. She's bringing a kind of strength even that the man lacks. A different kind of strength. Something God maybe didn't even give him. And she comes alongside of him with this strength to help him. To follow his leadership. Not as a maid, but as a co-reigning, strong image bearer. That's who this woman is. That's who Eve is. She's a strong Helper in home, in church, a strong helper. But she's also opposite him. She's also like opposite him, we're going to call it today. Like opposite him. It's how we translate fit for him. Remember I said these are really specific words. This helper is a strong helper. This like opposite, we're going to translate Uh, or fit for him, we're going to translate like opposite is how it's really translated. So what is it? Which one is it? Is she like him or is she opposite him? Make up your mind already. Which one is it? And don't both parties in marriage feel like that sometimes? (laughs) You're so like me. You're so like me. And yet you're so not like me. Don't you feel that? I see a couple heads. Okay, at least a couple people out there. And not even just marriage, I mean, even just relationships at work or wherever, you know. When men and women interact, there's so much alike, but there's also so much different. She's so like Adam that he says, you're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And yet, she's so unlike him, he gives her a different name. A different name. It can only be both if she's a compliment to him. Like and unlike It can only be both if she's a compliment to him. It's where we get the word complementarian. How the genders, how male and female, how husband and wife interact, they complement each other. Not compliment like say nice things about each other. They should do that too. But they complement alongside each other. Think about two pieces of a puzzle. Two pieces of a puzzle can only fit together if they're not identical. But they're similar as part of the puzzle and shaped like a puzzle piece. They have to be like opposite each other or rightly different to each other, perfectly complementing. And so God is sending someone into Adam's life who has incredible strength, but that's different than him in many ways. So different. 
and he her too. And for Eve, Adam has different strengths that fill up where she's lacking, and she has different strengths that fill up where he is lacking. And so in marriage, someone comes into your life who is like you and yet unlike you, and it's mysterious, isn't it? And you can't quite define it, but there she is, and there he is. And this person, many times, has got really different views of the world than you, don't they? Lots of different views. And you're thrown into the most intimate relationship there is. Think about that. Marriage. And what happens? You butt heads. You butt heads, don't you? You don't see things eye to eye. Remember, it's a military term. You butt heads. Let's look at the resulting marriage and see as we talk and unpack this relationship. There's a challenge here to leave. A challenge here to cleave with someone in a one flesh union. Let's look at that challenge now. Someone so like, yet unlike, strong helper. We hear the word compliment, and we think of the puzzle image, and we assume maybe you might, and many do as they enter into marriage or look at marriages. It shouldn't be so hard. It shouldn't be this hard. It just shouldn't be like that. If somebody completes me compliments, I mean, think of, remember the Jerry Maguire movie? It's an old movie now. But she came, he came into the house, and they're in a book study or something. They're all sitting there, and it's just this amazing moment. And he looks at her and says, you complete me. And she says, well, you had me at hello, right? Now, on the one hand, of course that's true. Of course that's true. You're bone of my bone. You're flesh of my flesh. I can't get enough of you. On the one hand. But also, like opposite. That's not the only reality, is it? All of you who are married say amen. Yes, right? That's not the only reality. We've got to be honest. If anywhere, we've got to be honest in the church. It's romantic and it's true, but there's more to marriage than that. I was in Starbucks a while back, and I couldn't help overhearing. I couldn't help, trust me. I couldn't help overhearing this conversation that was taking place between two men that were sitting at a table right next to me. And one was talking about his relationship uh, with his girlfriend. And these are men, you know, grown men, 30s or 40s. And he said, you know, eh, one guy was saying to the other, it's just not working. He said, I think I'm going to have to break it off. He said, you know, if this was working, if this was true love, it wouldn't be this hard. (laughs) Now, why would that be? Why, Why would he assume that? Because every story he grew up with told him that. Every story he grew up with told him that. Of course, there's Jerry Maguire moments. And there should be throughout a marriage, hopefully, in peaks and valleys and seasons. But that's not all. Of course it's hard. We're so different. And the relationship is so close that God calls it one flesh. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man, a man, there's initiating responsibility, shall leave his father and mother, And the man shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh here speaks to more than just sex, more than just the body. One flesh means that when you marry someone, you join together in body, yes, but in soul, in finances, in mind, in spatial relationship, in everything. 
everything is united. You have everything in common is what one flesh means. You share it back and forth. You give and take without thinking, well, that's mine, not yours. You know, finances come together. Your minds come together. Your bodies come together. Your home comes together. Your stuff comes together many times. You have everything in common. One flesh. Hear this now. This is why, this is why living with someone outside of marriage or having sex with someone outside of marriage is wrong. It's not just God says just don't do it. When you have sex with someone outside of marriage, when you live with someone outside of marriage, you are exploiting someone for your own selfish needs. What do I mean by that? If you're saying to them, well, I'll unite my body with you, uh, but mind, soul, money, house, possessions, I don't think so. Is that love? Uh, or let's even say you go a step further. I'll, you know what, body, yes, I'll move in with you. Let's do that. But marriage, you know, I, I'll, I'll unite the, okay, I'll unite my home, my, but the re- rest, I want a I way out. Is that love? You see why God's rules are never just about don't do? It's exploiting. It's not one flesh. It's not the, the, the covenant of marriage that's supposed to give us the security to finally actually share everything. That's why the government used to make divorce so hard. Because they realized the safety and security that a permanent exclusive relationship finally provided you. I can finally actually be myself. And tomorrow they can't just say, I'm out the door. That's why. That's why it's called the covenant of one flesh. And men, as I said, we're asked to leave and cleave, which doesn't mean you leave all your family relationships behind the dirt, no, or the dust. It means you, you prioritize this one as first and foremost. All of us know how hard it is to leave and cleave. You're going to talk about it in your life groups this week. Signs and symptoms of when you're not leaving and cleaving. Well, we didn't do it that way in my family, right? Well, that's not the way that's done. It's hard, but it's good. Why? What if the complementing nature of marriage is actually God using the other person in marriage to show you where you need to change? Think about that. That is not how our culture presents marriage. Here's this person who's so like me, but unlike me, she sees the world so different. He sees the world so different. You know, after 15 years of marriage, which is, I know, not long relatively speaking, but you begin to see the world with two perspectives. You rub off on each other, don't you? And then a decision comes to me, a split-second decision, and I think, well, how would I respond? Well, how would Robin respond? And which would work better in this moment? And through that marriage, God has expanded, hopefully my wisdom, right? Hopefully, he's expanded my view of the world because of this other, this other person. Through this one flesh union, what's actually happening? I'm becoming a different person, and so is my wife. We are becoming different people. But it comes many times through butting heads, doesn't it? Let's just be honest. It does. With a person like me, yet opposite me in a close relationship, being used by God to point out my flaws and my sin and me hers, so we can grow into the people God wants us to be. That's why it's hard. That's why it's hard. But this is also what's beautiful about it too, isn't it? 
Who else knows your flaws better than your spouse? And you will never see marriage for what it truly is unless you see it for this. But our world tells us approach marriage as a consumer. As a consumer. Do a cost-benefit analysis, right? With this relationship. Or, you know, it's not supposed to be this hard. It's not working. We want a product that will satisfy, not push back. One that affirms everything about me. We don't like like opposite. We think it shouldn't be this hard. Stanley Harwas is a, a theologian at Duke. He said this about marriage. The assumption is that there is someone who is just right, yin and yang, coming together, for us to marry. And if, that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even when first we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Like opposite in a one flesh union. Marriage is designed to bring you into conflict with yourself. With yourself. We say, ah, if she could just change. If he could just change. And I'm talking about a typical situation. We know we have atypical situations. We've already talked about them. Distortions of leadership and abuse. But we say, oh, he should change or she should change. Or this isn't how we did family where I came from. It shows you things about yourself you would never learn otherwise. You never would learn these things. So how do we stick it out then? In its beauty, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but also in its challenge, how do we stick it out? How do we leave and cleave? How do you get the resources that you need for your marriage? Here it is. It's Christ, the humble bridegroom. It's Jesus, the humble bridegroom. And if you're sitting here today too, and you think, well, you're single, or maybe widow, widower, and you heard this message start, there's nothing here for me. What was here for me? Jesus is here for you. And I want you to hear this today. I want you to think about this today. And all of us today, married or not, what does it mean that Christ can be your bridegroom? Do you know all over the Old Testament and New Testament, God describes himself and his, peop- as his, uh, and his people as he is the, the, we are the bride and he is the groom, the bridegroom. All over the Bible, he describes himself as that. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. God as the spouse of his people is a theme all over. And not a theme, a reality. All over the Bible. God as your spouse. Think about it. So like you, but so unlike you. So powerfully beyond us, and yet he gets so intimate in a marriage. And if the marriage relationship in general was created to mirror Christ in the church, which it was, this means that you need God. Not just as some guy who helps you when things go bad. Not just when you get into trouble or, yeah, I believe in him. 
Or, yeah, yeah, I need him. I, we go on a date every Sunday morning to church. No, he has to be your spouse. Your spouse. He becomes your ultimate helper fit for you. He has to. He's like you. You're you're made in his image, aren't you? You're like him in many ways. And yet he's so unlike you because he's perfectly holy. Like you and unlike you. And when he is your everything, when he is your everything, it allows you to live in marriage in a way you'd never be able to without him. If Jesus is your spouse, there's contentment. There is peace. God as your spouse puts marriage into a proper perspective. While on the one hand, yes, it can be gloriously beautiful, but your spouse can't be your everything. You complete me totally. That will crush your spouse. They weren't designed to deliver your soul. He has to be your everything. On the other hand, you won't feel the need to perfect your spouse like we feel or get so irritated with the flaws of your spouse. If God is your ultimate husband and the supplier of your needs, married or single, you're everything. And unless he becomes your spouse, you'll never become the person you were meant to be. Because as he comes into your life, so like you, so unlike you, to save you and change you. He'll do that. But as your spouse too, how we treat him grieves him. Think about it. So uh, like us in so many ways, so unlike us, yet comes to us as an intimate spouse. He's given us his love. I love in Exodus, he says, uh, where he talks about himself being a husband, he says, I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. What an intimate spouse picture. I took them by the hand to save them. It's a tender picture. And he asks for our love because we are united like a a spouse. He said, I love God, but what are you really living for? Does that show him you love him? And when we, when we sin or we abandon this spouse or turn our back on him, it hurts God like it hurts our spouse. I heard one preacher say it like this. Here's the quote. We are the spouse from hell. God is in the longest lived worst marriage in the history of the world. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. not. We just didn't spurn him, but we nailed him to the cross. You know, some of you might say, it feels like my spouse is crucifying me. In God's case, it really happened. That's the quote. Jesus didn't bail on the unfaithful spouse. Jesus stayed put when we nailed him on the cross. For your sake, for our sake, for you, for me. He didn't say, well, I, I want to find the, the perfect spouse to marry. Or, you know, this shouldn't be this hard, Father. This isn't working out down here. No, he said, I will come to you as you are. And I will deliver you as you are. And I will be the helper fit for you. And when you get this, you get the gospel. When you see the spouse this way, or groom, saved by grace through faith to our husband Jesus, when you get that, you get the gospel. 
Martin Luther had this great quote from this little book, The Freedom of the Christian, where he says, I'm paraphrasing it, through the wedding ring of faith, he said, you get everything Jesus has and he gets all of your stuff. So he takes your sin, your death, your hell, your loneliness, your feelings of incompleteness, and he gives you all his life, all his righteousness, all his eternity through the wedding ring of faith. And he becomes your husband. Jesus is the only spouse who will truly redeem you, is what we're saying. And when you take him into your heart like this, he becomes a resource of immense, infinite proportion to your marriage. Jesus becomes the resource you need. When you see his patience and love for you, you think to your spouse, oh, you've, you've wronged me. How much have I wronged my husband Jesus and yet been forgiven? You want me to forgive you? How much have I been forgiven by Jesus? That's how we use the gospel in our marriage. That's how we use the resources of him for us. From Adam and Eve to everyone after, the true spouse you need is Jesus. Whether you're married or single, the Bible begins with a wedding. Do you know that? We just saw it. He leaves, cleaves. The wedding was to bless God, to glorify him, to fill the earth with spiritual children. We're going to see next week, it failed. And the husband, Adam, failed to lead and protect his family from sin. But do you know how the Bible ends? It ends with a wedding too. The Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this marriage, too, is meant to do the same thing, populate the earth with spiritual children of God. But guess what? On the other side of that marriage, we have a groom who will never let you down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for becoming a groom to us, a bride that wasn't beautiful, a bride that turned its back on you, a bride who still does that, and yet you have remained faithful, faithful in life, faithful in obedience, faithful in the cross, and faithful now to change us through our marriages, change us through our relationships, Lord. Change us as we interact as men and women, like but so unlike. So God, be with us today. Jesus, be that groom to us. Strengthen our marriages. Um, lead us forward, we pray. Be that spouse to those who are married and unmarried, single or widowed, Lord Jesus. There's no second-class citizens in the church, and all can have completeness in you. Christ, then we pray.